welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that Mary's grandmother in Mary Mungo and Midge lived in Bluebell Cottage, Bannock, Perthshire, which is a bit of a far cry from the top floor of a block of council flats, really. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers that nobody else ever seems to is writer Bob Fisher. Bob, what are you up to? Where can we find it? I'm always up to something and not all of it is altogether wholesome. But at the moment, I am writing for quite a few magazines. So Electronic Sound magazine, who, well, they're about music, really, of an electronic persuasion, as is obvious from the title, I suppose. The Fortean Times continue to get me to write all kinds of strange things for them, which is always lovely. Doctor Who magazine. Oh, I know you're uh, no stranger to them yourselves, Tim. So that's always good fun. Who else do I write for? Shindig. I like doing stuff for Shindig magazine of a folky and psychedelic bent. The new project, there is a new project on the go, which is that I've just launched, along with a couple of fellow Northeastern writers, Andrew T. Smith and Andrew Orton. It's a company called Mulgrave Audio, and it is essentially to produce original audio drama. We're having a crack at this. We'll see how it goes. And our first release came out a few weeks ago, and it's an hour-long audio play, and it's called Simon Perkins Lurgy and it's set in 1974 and it's about a troubled teenager called Simon who basically becomes convinced that the television is talking to him. He's off school with some unspecified malaise and he's lying on his grand's settee and he's watching the open university modules on a a rainy weekday afternoons in September and the continuity announcer begins to initiate conversations with him and I'm really really proud of it. We found a lovely Teesside actor called Ethan Warren who was very young. uh, Simon in the play is 15 and Ethan was a week short of his 15th birthday when he recorded it so he was basically 14 and he put in a brilliant performance I think and fabulously we managed to persuade Roger Lim who I guess a lot of people will know from the BBC Radiophonic Workshop because he did music for Doctor Who and for the Box of Delights things like that in the 1980s but before he joined the Radiophonic Workshop Roger was a genuine TV continuity announcer for the BBC and he hadn't done it for 45 years when we recorded the play but we approached him and asked him if he fancied doing it and he was really into it and he threw himself into it and he still got the voice when you speak to Roger on the phone you kind of call him and it is like your 1970s telly is talking to you in person he still sounds I can't I can't even begin to describe it I guess it's a you know it's it's an RP voice and he's just when Roger says and that's the end of broadcasting here on BBC Two. But don't forget that our colleagues over at Radio Two will be broadcasting throughout the evening. All that kind of stuff. He does it in the most immaculate 70s continuity announcer's voice. So that is out there now. Simon Perkins Lurgy will do more, I think. There will be more to follow. So there you go. Is that enough to be going on with? That certainly is, because we're moving on to your first choice, which involves a very different kind of troubled teenager from around <laughs> roughly the same time, where I think if he thought anything would be talking to him... It'd probably be the youth training scheme.
Okay, that's the very perky funk brass theme. I've got plenty more to say about that from Tucker's Look. <laughs> if you recognise the name Tucker, but you don't know the series, you're along the right lines. Bob, what was going on here? Well, do you know what? I was so amazed because when we talked about topics to cover on this edition of Looks Unfamiliar, I thought, well, obviously somebody will have done Tucker's Look before now. So what I'll do is I'll pick a really obscure character from Tucker's Look and talk about him instead. And you came back and said, oh no, nobody's done Tucker's Look, which I couldn't quite believe because I think it's an absolutely terrific series. So this is essentially a spin-off from Grange Hill, broadcast between 1983 and 1985. There's three series of it. And it's Tucker Jenkins, who was an icon of the early years of Grange Hill. And I guess a character so popular that they just didn't want to lose him. You know, the problem with popular characters in Grange Hill is that they have to leave school at some point and you don't see them again but they didn't want that to happen with Tucker he had his own inbuilt fan base and so Tucker's Luck was launched and it belongs to it's a kind of school of not just TV I think it extends into literature as well and a few films it's like a school of generally very early 1980s pop culture that I tend to, I mean, I've described it before as Thatcher's Britain with an F on the start of it. And it's just, it's like a little bubble of popular culture from, I say, roughly 1979 to about 1984. And just the look of it and the feel of it is relentlessly bleak and it's 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 generally all about young people trying to find their way in a world where there really isn't there aren't that many options for them so it's the tv of job centers of dole cues of hopelessness of football hooligans and all tied in with the fashions of the era you know those lads that you would see walking down the street in the early 1980s that i think kind of came to be known as casuals so you see all lads walking down the street to football matches with the flick haircut the (laughs) like the fringe like sort of wedge with the fringe over one eye they look like members of modern romance on their day off absolutely that so they'd have (laughs) they'd have to keep flicking like one one like the fringe out of their eye all the time. That whole era I just find so incredibly evocative. I think maybe because it sort of summed up, you know, I'm from the northeast of England. I'm from Teesside near Middlesbrough. My dad was unemployed a lot in the 1980s. We didn't have a lot of money coming in. And my dad was a builder, you know, so programs like Boys and the Black stuff that I think very much firmly belong to that Thatcher's Britain school of TV. You know, that just absolutely summed up our life at the time. Tucker's Look does the same for me, even though it's set in London. I absolutely recognise just the look and the grimness of that period in British history. But having said that, there's a lot of humour in Tucker's Look. You know, Todd Carty is a brilliant actor. So yeah, the interplay between it's Tucker along with his friends Alan and Tommy, who you know have also graduated from Grange Hill. The interplay between them is genuinely funny. So the whole thing kind of mishes, mashes together into this gloriously... It's like the gallows humour of the early Thatcher years. It's a terrific piece of television. And it's one of the great... One, one of the great regrets of my life, Tim. That I, we've never had the opportunity to buy it on DVD. 
I think it would make a brilliant, you know, three-disc box set. And I'm so frustrated that I guess now we're right at the fag end of the era of classic TV being released on physical media. I'm so frustrated that it's never actually happened because I'd love to see it. Yes, as you say, it was part of... I mean, there was that wider thing, like you say, the Thatcher's Britain TV. But there was a kind of microcosm of it on BBC Two. Yep. When the news was on BBC One, they would have youth shows that you watched as if they were an extension of the children's BBC schedules, even though they technically weren't. Yeah, that's true. Obviously, that's where it had things like the adventure game and so on, you know, and now get out of that, you know, more cerebral things. But it also had dramas like Maggie, which is a sort of postcard record style one about the girl who was from a family who worked in a factory who she wanted to go to university, as B.A. Robertson put it at great length in the theme song, but we might be mentioning him later, (laughs) so let's save him for now. There was Dear Heart, the sort of post-punk sketch, show about a teen problem magazine yeah and this fitted in very much with that and i will be honest although i do think phil redmond missed the point enormously a lot of the time with a lot of things he did i think this was absolutely bang on for what it was trying to be there was only one weak link in the whole program for me go on i mean there are so many great things like Let's you know, have it. okay i'll come back to what i think is great <laughs> in a minute on. but the opening titles are really good with like a just 17 photo story <laughs> yes. with them all kind of outside even though it's in black and white one of those job centers with the orange sign the orange job center yeah. it's so evocative it and everything about it captures their characters and there's a bit where they indicate that alan is on the dole because he looks at some chips and then looks at the money he's got counts like there's a couple of like 10 pence pieces in his hand <laughs> but the only problem is that theme music which sounds like Aww. a very 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 polite version of destination zululand by king kurt it's like they knew what was going on what these kids would be listening to but were too frightened to go all the way with it. <laughs> Who is it? Is it Alan Hawkshaw? I think it is. Obviously Alan Hawkshaw did Chicken Man, yeah, the Grange Hill theme. I think which it's is, him again. You know, it's absolutely iconic, but this isn't quite Chicken Man. <laughs> oh, I like the theme tune to it. And now that you've mentioned it, I've got it stuck in my head. I've been trying to trace the kind of like the earliest years, the Rosetta Stone of Thatcher's Britain TV. Because you mentioned some great examples there. And I mean, there's also stuff like, I think Johnny Jarvis is quite contemporary yes, with, with yeah. Tucker's Look, which is a. Sip. Swark, which was a Channel 4 oh, proper page. I don't page remember thing. that, right? Okay. Yeah, and that was Nicola Cowper as a teenage girl, and Prunella Scales as Aunt Patty, who was oh, a okay. problem page agony aunt to advise that sort of. Right. Had the kind of like altered images theme tune. That's oh. what makes me think the Tucker's Look theme tune doesn't quite match up to the other ones around because everything else you know they had B.A. Robertson they had Dream yeah. Stuffing had Kirsty McColl you know there were people obviously emulating the real sounds but this just didn't go the whole <laughs> well the, the earliest example that I can find is a programme called Four Idle Hands that I'm yes. guessing you might be aware of which has got the absolutely it's much earlier because you you know you'd watch it and you think oh it's a Thatcher's Britain series but I think it's from about 1977 it's quite ahead of its time it's got the absolutely perfect casting if you're going to make a program at that era about two likely lads who just left school and were looking for work in the absolute wastelands of late 1970s early 80s britain you'd have to pick phil daniels and ray burdis to be in it it's virtually on the statute book if you're making any kind of program <laughs> like that you've got to cast them both so that i think is the earliest example but it was i mean there aren't hundreds of them you know it's not like a huge scene a huge movement but it is 
absolutely there. Well, do you know about the one that was nearly oh, brought into all that? Do you remember Sea View, which was kind of I a love Sea View. BBC One children's sitcom. I do, absolutely. When the cast got a bit older... Was there going to be a spin-off were... with George by himself? Well, they were originally just going to move it straight into the BBC Two slot and right. have them, you know, as school leavers. Yeah. And it just never came about oh. for some reason. I really wish they'd done that because that was, again, that was light and funny and it was for kids. But, you know, it was about a brother and sister who moved to a coastal town. Yeah. And their mate, James, the local friend they made, was the kind of kid who robbed fruit machines. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it was all right because of context. He wasn't, you know, an evil or a robber. It was just how they made ends meet in his family. Everybody remembers that Yvette Fielding was the older sister in Sea View. Yeah. And she's great in it. I always liked the lad in it that played, because the main character is called George. And he's the most fabulously sarcastic kid. He's really ridiculously hangdog. He's like he's like the Wally Batty of like kids programs. So yes, no, it was a great little program. And Maggie Ollerinshaw is the mum in Sea View, wasn't it? She's an actor that I really like. She's always brilliant. Maggie Ollerinshaw is fantastic. Yeah. It's a shame she never did the book. She was so recognisable mm. around then. She was one of those people. I think she played much older than she actually ah, was. Ah, well, now here you go because I can do a ridiculous name drop here. A Maggie Ollerinshaw. <laughs> This is what this show was made for. So, it's only a couple of weeks ago, I took part in a 50th anniversary celebration of Last of the Summer Wine in Homefirth, the town where it was filmed. But as part of it, we wanted to include First of the Summer Wine as well, which was the 1988 spin-off. First of the Summer Wine is set in 1939, just as war is rumbling. So we have a teenage Norman Clegg, played by David Fenwick, and his mom, Clegg's mom, is played by Maggie Ollerinshaw. Now, David Fenwick actually came to the weekend in Homefirth a couple of weeks ago, and he's absolutely charming. And he was saying, I think we worked out that he was playing an 18-year-old Norman Clegg, but he was 26, and Maggie Ollerinshaw was playing his mom, and she was a about 37. There's not that much between them. So yeah, she was. When we were watching her playing middle-aged women in the 1980s, she was about 34. But she's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant actor. Just one of those great British female character actors. Sorry, we've drifted quite a long way off Tucker's luck here, haven't we? Well, yeah, I'd sure to go back to it. I did say I was going to say some of the things I think are absolutely brilliant about it. One of them is, I mean, to say the antagonist is the antagonist in the first series, but as would happen in real life, he finds out that he's got a lot more in common with Tucker than he realised and becomes sort of allies over the course of the series, which is Ralph Passmore, the skinhead, yeah. who I'm sure people would laugh at his appearance now. That looked exactly like the kind of rude boy you saw from the end it of the street totally when you're getting did. into the car and thought, oh, I hope he doesn't come any nearer. Well, and, you know, he vaulted railings. He yeah. got the whole kind of getting furious from nowhere when he didn't understand things. Yeah. Spot on. Absolutely. What a brilliant... I mean, it's not really a villain. He's just a, an angry kid. Kids that they encounter, but it's so accurate. One of my little bugbears in life is that I, I, there are very few actors, I think, that can pull off being genuinely scary. Very, you know, a lot of actors can do kind of evil, but very few actors, I think, you look at them on screen and go, God, I wouldn't want to come across him on a dark night in a back alleyway. Alan Lake is one that always, and, I, Alan, and from yeah. what I can gather, Alan Lake was genuinely terrifying in real life as well. You know, I've been lucky enough to spend a bit of time with Robin Asquith over the years and by God, some of the stories that he's told about Alan Lake are absolutely extraordinary. And I think it's Peter McNamara who plays Ralph Passmore. 
captures it as well. There's something genuinely disturbing about Passmore in that first series of Tucker's Luck. What's also brilliantly done is his mate, who's called Brains. Yes. And it's a kind of, I, can't, I can't recall the actor's name, but he's just like, like neck to knees in stonewashed denim. And then like the 36 hole cherry red DMs and the skinhead. Like it's beyond a skinhead. It's just shaved to the skull. And there's, you know, stuff like his clothes are torn but not in the kind of you know kind of cool like post-punk toy his clothes are torn because he's just you know been on the receiving end of kickings all the time and administered no doubt loads of them himself and that's just the i used to see those lads at football matches all the time in the 1980s absolutely terrifying that first series of tucker's luck i genuinely think is one of the greatest series of anything and it culminates in a fight at a skating park in the final episode yes! between tucker and Passmore, but to me, I remember kid, reading the Radio Times capsule oh, for that and thinking that sounds brilliant. They're at like a roller disco. Oh God, honestly, it's just it's a brilliant series, and it also I <laughs> Tucker's Luck has some of the finest examples of what our friend Mike Scott refers to as sausage acting. Which, for those unaware of this particular genre of acting, uh, this particular technique is basically... It's very common in fatuous Britain programmes. You need two young men who've just bought a tray of chips. And one of them, but only one of them, has a Savaloy. Which is, can you even buy Savaloys anymore? <laughs> they seem to be everywhere in the early 1980s. What happened to all the Savaloys? Is there a great British Savaloy shortage? One of them has got a Savaloy that he hasn't touched. So the other one takes it off his mate's tray of chips, takes a bite out of it, and then crucially uses it to gesticulate like you would use a, like a pipe. <laughs> like pipe spokers are able to do, to, to jab it. <laughs> in their opponent's face to make a particularly vociferous point. It has to be done with a Savaloy. And bonus points if the lad who's nicked it says, you're not hungry then, and takes a huge bite out of it. Sausage acting. Mike is convinced they used to teach it at Anna Share. Mentioning that climax of the first series, because there's storylines about girls in it and so on that realistically don't go anywhere after that first series. Nope. You know, they meet different people. And the brilliant thing is, as would happen in real life, as of series two, they start drifting apart. Absolutely. Which is where brilliant. the character that you wanted to mention comes into it. This is it. So a uh, second series, the uh, character appears... It's called Creamy Eames. <laughs> Unlikely as it sounds. <laughs> Insert your own jokes here. I can assure you, people have said this over the years, but genuinely, TV Cream was not named after Creamy Eames. <laughs> I'm sure, actually, Phil Norman will be thinking now, why didn't I think of that? Played by an actor called Adam Cotts, who's still acting. He's, he's been in Midsummer Murders and things like that. But it's just a character that fascinates me because... It's the first time that I recall seeing somebody homeless portrayed on TV in that way. So if you watch TV from before 1980 and beyond that as well, you often see Trab. It's a character in lots of comedy, drama, anything. This kind of romantic ideal of, oh, he's a tramp. And it's kind of an old guy with a big beard and a floppy hat and a you know huge coat tied with a bit of string. But Creamy in series two of Tucker's Luck is a lad who I think it's suggested there's been some kind of fallout with his family and there's possibly some darkness there. But 
but he's left home in his late teens and he is basically drifting doing what i think now gets called couch surfing just kind of drifting from mate to mate from house to house i'm just looking for anywhere to live and i've never really seen that portrayed in such a it's depicted in a very sensitive and a very understanding way and it's a brilliant portrayal from adam Coates as well i think he's fabulous in it so kind of he was the one i was going to pick out but i'm glad that we've done tucker's look as a whole and you know i'd never thought about that but you're absolutely right it's brilliant in the way that it portrays like you say friendships especially friendships between young people where people just disappear people just leave your life they drift out of it they move away they get a job somewhere else they go back to college or university or whatever or if they're like tommy they start nicking stuff and selling it down the market yeah tucker wants nothing to uh, do complete with. tommy gets into really bad company and gets involved with like a local gangster club owner and then i think is he is he not in series three i don't think he is tommy is he he's not no because it's the whole thing about tucker kind of grows up as well yeah, yeah. As part of it he enrolls at technical college in series three and he takes some responsibility for his younger sister i think that's that, right am i right thinking the dad does a bunk or something and he steps up but the real surprise in it is that you know as you say you had alan and tommy as holdovers in grange hill yeah apparently ralph passmore was actually possibly not named but a minor character in grange hill at one point oh, i don't remember that no, but I i've don't. seen that claimed elsewhere right, it okay. may have just been he was an extra and they thought he'd be brilliant yeah. at it yeah yeah but right at the end back in comes Trisha Yates That's herself right. having grown up yep. and her and Tucker appear to be on the verge of some kind of romance. It's a genuinely lovely ending, it is. It is brilliant. It's left there yep. that there wasn't any follow-on to it because I do think that I feel oddly emotional saying this about two mm. characters from I was much younger than them when they were in Grange Hill but the fact that they could have had a happy life yeah. yep. just it's making me actually sort of almost well I'm a little bit thinking myself no totally and utterly it is a genuinely lovely ending and I once again clang in my inexplicable years as a mainstream BBC local radio presenter. I had the genuine pleasure of spending an hour in the studio with Todd Carty because he was in Panto in Middlesbrough so I persuaded him to come in for an hour one night. It's a lovely rambling evening show that I used to do. You know, obviously we talked about the Panto and we talked about Grange Hill which obviously he would have been expecting to do. Possibly not in quite so much detail as he ended up talking about it. But then I brought out Tucker's Luck and actually, I actually brought out my Tucker's Luck annual 1984 <laughs> which I'm very proud to say I got signed. But he said he was, ge- Tucker's luck was, uh, you know, a thing that he was genuinely, absolutely proud of because it was real and it was social comment and that it kind of tied up Tucker's story perfectly. You know, like you say, Tucker is the one that grows up and has sort of a happy ending. But it's a lovely, lovely, bittersweet series. I just, I wish there was a proper release for it and I still keep my fingers crossed. Well, I'm glad that Todd Carty is really proud of he it. Is. That makes he is. an anecdote I've got about Tucker's luck seem a little less hard. <laughs> oh, right, what? Have you got a quote from Todd Carty saying he thinks it's rubbish? I assume it would have been 1989 or 90. I remember having a conversation with Stephen O'Brien of this parish. Yeah. When we were talking about, because, you know, as kids, we were always talking about what happened to any of the Tomorrow people and things like that, <laughs> or what happened to Toto Quayle, that sort of thing. But we were once saying, do you remember Todd Carty? You know, because in those days, when something had gone from the TV, that was it, it was gone. Yeah. We were saying, do you remember Todd Carty was in Tucker's Luck and Grange Hill? We were laughing. I remember distinctly saying, oh, yeah, because he used to, he did that jump in the opening titles. <laughs> 
have us said, he must have thought that'd be his big break. And then it wasn't. And then very shortly afterwards, EastEnders Absolutely. is on. Yeah. What happens? Yeah. Todd Carty suddenly appears as a new Mark Fowler. Indeed. And we were a bit eating our words slightly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, following on from that, kind of 25 years in the biggest programme on British television. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest, I've not checked in those wilderness years. He could have been doing Pinter like non-stop I, in I, West I, End. They, uh, let's, let's hope for the sake of argument that he was. Let's just say that. <laughs> That'd be fine. No, he's a brilliant actor. Genuinely brilliant actor. Mm. And he hadn't come from that kind of stage school background, I don't think. As far as I can recall, the story was that he got the job on Grange Hill because I think he was part of you know sort of like a saturday acting club down his local youth club and he'd gone along on the off chance and he was being cheeky in the queue for the auditions he was just you know he was basically being tucker jenkins in the queue and legend has it that phil redmond saw that yeah that's him that's tucker jenkins which is a lovely story i think but todd carty is an actor that i genuinely admire a lot and having met him i can say that you know meet your heroes don't listen to people meet your heroes you generally won't be disappointed well well, yes, obviously, and if Mariah Carey and or Belinda Carlisle do want to come and look so familiar, <laughs> yes, I will meet my heroes. But if Todd Carty had been doing Pinter in the West End during those years, then he might well have been next door to your next choice. Just one Cornetto. illustrative clip of them was the work of Pookie Snackenberger, a name that should not trip off my tongue that easily, but they were everywhere in the early 80s. So Bob, who were they? Pookie Snackenberger were essentially a band. They were a sort of post- punk, a little bit raggle-taggle. There's a kind of whiff of early Dexies about them. There's yeah, a... I've got noted down here. Yeah. They look like they're turned up to fix Dexies Midnight Runner's car. <laughs> <laughs> Which was a thing, I think, wasn't it? There was like bands like Joe Boxers around at the time as well. They thought, yeah, they, you know, you could imagine all of these, all of these bands, you know, able to slip into a pair of dungarees and a woolly hat well, at a moment. Turning notice. up at the end of an episode of The Grange Hill saying, oi, Pogo, we want a word <laughs> yeah, with completely. you. completely. So yeah, they were a band from Brighton who were kind of like, I'd say a bit post-punky, a little bit brassy. There was a lot of stomping around, a lot of percussion, a lot of comedy as well. They were quite a funny band. But the reason that I wanted to pick them, I think there's kind of a, there's a school of artists, of singers and bands around the early 1980s and going into the mid-1980s that somehow, and for reasons that I can't adequately explain, became absolutely inextricably 
linked to children's TV. So the reason that I can tell you about Pookie Snackenberger is that, as I recall, they were an absolute fixture on Saturday Superstore around the sort of 1982, 83, 84 era. My mate Gary, I watched BBC 4's Top of the Pops repeat quite a lot with my mate Gary. His kind of constant refrain whenever a band appears on Top of the Pops for like, you know, the fourth time in five weeks, he'll say, oh God, they must have lived around the corner from Shepherd's Bush. And he'll say, you can imagine the phone call coming in. Like, Are you available? I'm like, yes, <laughs> yes, we're available. We'll just come in. And Pookie Snackenberger appeared to be that band on Saturday Superstar. In my head, they were there every three weeks. And I loved them. I thought they were great. And they kind of, they went on to, did they have their own Channel 4 series in the mid-80s? They did. Pookie Snackenberger in, yes. in 1985. They, yeah. they did achieve some degree of mainstream success. There was a Heineken commercial as well, wasn't now, there? They were playing bins. This is it, isn't it? Because they became, were they called the Yes No Band? The Yes No People. The Yes No did the people. Blue Peter theme at one point. Yes. yes. And their, uh, their big thing was kind of playing bins, wasn't it? That was their routine. Yeah. They'd pick up <laughs> dustbins and clatter them, and it, it was fantastic. But yeah, there is a Heineken advert from about 1985, I think, that is basically them doing that. But it just it just got me thinking about, I mean, you mentioned B.A. Robertson earlier on, who is another one. What is it about, you know, because B.A. Robertson not only appeared to be on Swap Shop and Saturday Superstore every week, he ended up doing the themes as well. What is it about a certain type of artist that just made them perfect for kids' TV? Well, XTC fitted into that exactly as well. Right, they okay. were always... Until there was the gear change when Andy Partridge had that breakdown and couldn't play live anymore. They were always all over things like Swap Shop. I think it was that kind of, there was a sort of, you can see it a little bit in John Lydon. I genuinely would argue this in the 70s. Here here we go, I'm going to sit back here. (laughs) There's an affinity that kind of punks and post-punks. Well, the more boisterous end of the scale. I mean, I don't really think you could apply this to Elvis Costello or somebody or, you know, X-Ray Specs, but actually maybe X-Ray Specs, but I had kind of an affinity with kids, with the raucousness Mm. and the irreverence and anarchy of them. And I think that suited them really well. And I think as well, you're talking about people like B.A. Robertson and I assume Pookie Sackenberger for reasons I'll come back to, sort of came out of fringe theatre, I suppose, really. They knew the the value of having an act that you could adapt to different audiences. Yes, completely. Flying Pickets are another one. Same room. Came from quite radical theatre, I think, didn't they? Because the name is not ironic. They they were the flying Pickets were genuine flying pickets who would kind of turn up and play benefits for striking minors. Do you know what two additional members there were in the original lineup? They came out of a theatre show that they did as the flying pickets. Oh, what left before the hits? Go on, no, I don't. Go on, who? Sylvester McCoy and Chris Ryan. Oh, wow. No, I did not know that. Both of whom you can see in the sort of faux rock and roll gear. Just like... I can't. No, It's I what they were most of the time anyway, to be fair. <laughs> so there, were, uh, there are early lineups of the Flying Pickets that included both of those. That's kind of curious because I had a pet theory. <laughs> this possibly speaks volumes about me as an 11-year-old. My pet theory... <laughs> in 1984 was that the flying pickets were because there were how many were there six of them or seven of them it's quite a lot of them wasn't there my pet theory was that they were essentially the remaining incarnations of doctor who being, being Do you know, there is trailed. Something in that. and then brian hibbard was later in, <laughs> who doctor, was in who, doctor basically who, playing sorry. bloke out the flying pickets. but there's just when you when i watch them on any top of the pops performance apart from the one when they're all dressed as snowmen and they like pan along and there's the guy you know there's one of them in like a 
floppy hat and a scarf, and there'll be another one in like a burgundy smoking they jacket. There could be incarnations <laughs> of Morbius. <laughs> now, that, now that we can retcon these things, it's quite clear the flying pickets are all pre-Hartnell doctors, aren't they? <laughs> was he called Red Stripe, the bald Red one? Red Stripe was one of them, yeah. Yeah, the, the bald... Well, he was my favourite, actually. The bald guy. Like, like a whiff of Uncle Fester about him. Like a trade union Uncle well, Fester. Well, uh, the main thing I remember about is when they did the one where they were all dressed as snowmen and had snow falling on them, it's just a piled up in his head. <laughs> Oh, fantastic. And made the pattern that Snow only makes on, like, the mastheads of 1980s comics at Christmas. Sorry, I've completely lost track of where we are. Pookie Snackenberg and B.A. Robertson. So I guess, yeah, for these bands that became kids TV affiliated, I think a lot of them have got... The thing that they have is the, is the kind of gang mentality. I mean, so it doesn't apply to B.A. Robertson because it's just him. But when I think of Pookie Snackenberger and I guess bands that I think like Madness and Joe Boxers or had that kind of whiff about them there's a sort of gang mentality there's lots of them and you can imagine them being like the older brothers of your mates that have all got together in the neighborhood and there's an element of comedy to all these bands as well i think that like you say i guess because when you mentioned like you know punk having a bit of like funny raucousness about it i thought about splodgeness abounds as well who i haven't put on my list at all but i think they're part of it the kind you know do you imagine tv producers who were maybe a little bit trendy in the early 80s like the younger producers with a, like a skinny tie with piano keys all the way down it and a pair of red framed specs. <laughs> they would doubtless want, oh, let's get some punk bands on because that's what kids like. But we don't want like properly scary punk bands. We want funny punk bands that will do well on kids TV. So maybe there was a bit of that about it as well. But the main thing I associate them with in terms of TV is, again, this is something I think it's hard to gauge in the days where, you know, because everything on ITV is homogenised now. But in those days, ITV regions had their own opt-out slots and things could be as different down the road almost. Oh, yeah. As you know, it was like a completely different channel. I remember seeing Pookie Slackenberger a lot on. In Granada, we used to get a lot of art shows, like in the very early right. evening. When I say art shows, I mean looking at what was going on in sort of Liverpool and Manchester and surrounding regions that you could go and see. And it's sort of thing where you get, you know, those women with kind of magic marker haircuts you got everywhere in the 80s <laughs> who come on and like hold up a picture of Venezuela and go, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> And so you get them, you get those blokes that had Thunderbird 2 on their head. <laughs> and you would always get Pookie Snackenberger. And the thing was, by the time the presenter had said the name and introduced all of them, because there were about eight of them, there wasn't enough time to do a song. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've lost something here, haven't we? I don't know. I'm sure you have seen it, but Sky Arts have been running a series from the vaults with Guy Garvey over the last few years, produced and directed by my old schoolmate, Kerry. So I say hello to Kerry if she ever gets to hear this. And they've been kind of, you know, they're basically compilations of clips from the ITV archive of exactly that, of bands that, you know, some of whom became massive and are not the most obvious candidates to go on like a regional pop programme, but of, you know, those bands traipsing around the ITV regions and having to <laughs> having to do awkward stilted interviews on razzmatazz on Tide Tees. And they really, the last thing, they, the last thing that Public Image Limited really wanted to do was traipse up to Newcastle. I'm fairly sure I saw the Redskins on either Rasputin or Hold Tight. <laughs> exactly. Genuinely. I don't know if they were doing kick over the statues. It might have been go get organised or something. <laughs> 
Do you know what? This just reminded me, because I saw on Saturday, this Saturday just gone, I saw OMD play live. And they were fantastic. I've never seen them before. They were genuinely brilliant. And it just reminded me, about 10 years ago, I interviewed Andy McCluskey from OMD, again, for my, during my inexplicable stint on BBC Local Radio. He said, basically, what, he gave me one of my favourite quotes of all time, and one that has inspired me and that I've used in interviews for years now. Essentially, Andy McCluskey's line was... I'll do this theatrically, I'll give it a build-up. <clears throat> I formed a band because I wanted to be in craft work, and I ended up making traffic light sandwiches on Saturday morning telly with Timmy Mallet. And I just thought, that's perfect. That is the perfect encapsulation. Also, don't Kraftwerk's first two albums have traffic cones on them? So you could argue that, you know, it's only very slightly got lost in translation. I just think that is the perfect encapsulation. You, you start off thinking, I'm going to change the world with my band. We're a serious band. We've got stuff to say. We're going to bring the government down. And what you actually end up doing at the behest of your record label is going on the most ridiculous regional kids TV shows and make an absolute fool of yourself. So for years now, whenever I've interviewed anybody who came to pop fame during that era, I generally cannot resist asking them, what is their traffic light sandwich moment? What was the moment <laughs> where you thought, what am I doing on this programme? Uh, it's, it's funny how many times Timmy Mallet has come up over the years, actually. <laughs> <laughs> It's actually a very happy postscript involving Pookie Sackenberg oh, and just that, yep. which is, after they devolved into the yes-no people who were a little bit more serious, they were kind of, yeah. they evolved into the arty side of the band then, you know, the regional art show <laughs> yeah. incarnation really, but they ended up on, I think it was in 1990, a children's ITV programme, which I think was in a really weird slot on Saturday mornings called A Beetle Called Derek. Oh right, which yeah, was a, I remember that. Like a sort of ecological news programme, presented by Andrea Arnold, they also had Benjamin Zephaniah doing poems every week. God, that's Where really, Where my memory bells. is, every single poem went, planet for sale no careful owners if there are trees it would be a bonus but it was basically that good. but they were a resident band on that right and as a direct consequence of that they ended up evolving into the west end show stomp yes which, which was, was the big is still running to this day that is essentially probably the, next door to the in the next theater to the blokes with thunderbird two on the head so <laughs> yeah i make fun of a lot but they were genuinely huge west end sensation for years so sorry scott and virgil or whatever you're actually called <laughs> This stomp is basically the Heineken Bins advert, isn't it? Writ large. Yes. Yes. Yeah. There you go. It reached the part that other beers cannot reach. And again, none of this explains why B.A. Robertson became so heavily affiliated to Saturday morning television. But it at least gives us, I think, genuinely one of my favourite pop singles of the early 80s, which is the Brown Sauce single, which is like, on paper, it's, oh, the Swap Shop team have made a record. In practice, what it actually was, what we can see now now, Tim, as cynical, grizzled adults, B.A. Robertson made a record and got Keith Chegwin and Maggie Philbin to sing on it. But what a record it is. I just want to be a winner. It's a great piece of pop music. And I love the way Noel is not actually on the record no. but he affects to play all the instruments in Absolutely. the video. That is very him. I just, I, I remember watching that as an eight-year-old and thinking, I didn't know Noel Edmonds could play the drums and he's really good. It's like, he quite clearly took no part in it whatsoever. But you can imagine Keith Chegwin and Maggie Philbin, particularly Cheggers possibly, kind of fancying themselves as a, you know, we could actually do this, you know. You know what, Maggie? We could be pop stars here. <laughs> <laughs>
I really do love B.A. Robertson, though. I think he gets a, an unfair crack of the whip because I think he's been not just forgotten. There's some perception, I think probably because of that row he had on, was it Friday night, Saturday morning? Oh, with, with uh, our, uh, Arabella Lewin from Bow Wow yeah. Wow. Yeah. Who, that's a bit kind of two wrongs don't make a right, that argument. <laughs> I thought that she refers to him as like an old fart. And he's, I, say, I like to say, how old was B.A. Robertson at that point? He's only about 28. And he is quite a little bit condescending and patronising right, I, say, I, I can't remember but, it right, okay. but I think his three albums of the early 80s are genuinely really really good yep. they veer between serious stuff like you know there's Sanson which is about the fact he suddenly found himself very famous and didn't like it. Yeah. Even if you're not anybody, you can find something to resonate with you in that song. Yeah, no. Because it, think... it's about the despair of expectations at you. And then on the other hand, you've got stupid songs about, there's one called Darth Vader, about <laughs> playing darts and being obsessed with Star Wars. There's nothing more than 1979 that B.A. Robertson did with a song called It'll Be Alright on the Night. Yeah. I think they're really good. And he does all kinds of other things, like he presented, well, he was one of the team of performers on Dear Heart, which you mentioned there. Right. Right, okay. He acted in a few things. He hosted a chat show at one point. He wrote the Wogan theme. He definitely wrote the first one. He may have Did written one later ones that? as well. Okay. He wrote the Commonwealth Games theme for 1986 for the BBC. All these incredible things that he did before obviously just moving into the background and becoming a songwriter. Yeah, I think that maybe counts against him a little bit as well. A, that he was so, he was versatile. You could never pin him down and say, oh, he's that. But also because he was funny and he wasn't afraid to be funny and he put humour into his songs. People don't like that. Pop stars have to be, they've got to be serious, haven't they? They've got to be, got to be pretentious and speak out about things. And B.A. Robertson, just one of those you know, pop stars that seemed to be doing it because he thought it was quite a good laugh. And he knew, you know, you would never watch B.A. Robertson on top of the pops and think, oh, he's taking himself a bit too seriously here. He just sends it up and he sends himself up. So maybe that counts against him a little bit. Although he did write, didn't he write the lyrics to Mike and the Mechanics living years? Because yep. pe- people think, oh, that's about Mike Rutherford's relationship with his father. Uh, you know, I've heard Mike Rutherford have to put that right in countless interviews. It's it's about B.A. Robertson's relationship with his father, isn't it? It is. And he also wrote Carrie Doesn't Live Here Anymore for Cliff Richard, which is a absolutely chilling record from a time when teenage runaways weren't really... Did he write that? I didn't well, know. Did really he really write that? I didn't know, know Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, right, okay. If um, anyone's yeah, not heard it, it's about single. Cliff trudging around looking for a missing teenage girl and getting some very sinister replies at places she'd lived. Absolutely, yeah. In its own way, that's a record that had something to say that maybe was a little ahead of its time. Yeah, no, there's a little purple patch with Cliff, isn't there, in the late 1970s, where he made some genuinely terrific records and that is absolutely one of them. Possibly undermined by the version that used to be sung in my school playground. We did school playground songs last time we did this, didn't we? By my standards, it was fairly harmless. Carrie doesn't live here anymore. Try the supermarket next door with the addendum being that they'd have a cash and carry. We were seven years old. Yeah, so whatever he's doing now, I hope he's extraordinarily happy because I do like B.A. Robertson a lot. A lot of time for him. Well, we're moving on to your next choice now, who were some very, very serious punks who had something very important and meaningful to say. Famous. 
possible I've managed to sneak the entire song in there. Because as we will come back to, there's a reason we know how long it is, but that... (laughs) Who are those gentlemen with Mohicans, Bob? That is, of course, Buster Gobsmack and Eats Filth. It's a punk single from 1988. Surely the only punk single released in 1988. But as you may have gathered, dear listener, something is afoot here. All was not as it seemed, because Eats Filth were essentially Grant Bainham and Adrian Mills, presenters of That's Life. You've written kind of fabulous reams of stuff about the history of BBC Records, albums and singles. And there was just a, there was a period where, I don't know who was in, oh, you'll be able to tell me, I'm sure, who was in charge of like selecting material to be released on BBC Records. There's a period in the late 1980s when they seemed to, there were issues at stake there, Tim. There was something, somebody needed help. Was the story basically, was it a story about That's Life were investigating somebody in Manchester who was basically ripping off bands? Well, I remember watching it from the time. Oh, go on. And I think the story's become a bit distorted. Ah. We should just say, a lot of people might not be familiar with That's Life, but it was a Sunday night consumer affairs show where it would be incredibly mixed between hard-hitting things about playgrounds fitted out with concrete paving that didn't meet safety standards. Yeah. Weighed up against shopkeepers with funny shop names. Absolutely. But the actual campaigns they did, I think it's because this thing was on year round for years and years. And it was an hour on a Sunday night every week. And they had to... So there was a variable hit rate. Some campaigns you would look at and think, why are they even bothered about that? (laughs) And this one, my recollection is a kind of sort of gothy Citizen Mercy Fields and Nephilim band written in saying they saw an advert from a cameraman who said, I can make a professional video. Yeah. of your band and they met with him and he filmed them and they weren't happy with the results which is them sort of standing on the stage performing I've seen worse I th- videos I think they've been expecting you know like the girls on film video <laughs> I'm just going to say wild boys but they showed the clip and <laughs> Esther said yes you'll agree not very professional looking the thing was it looked professional in terms of a camera shoot yeah it's just you know it wasn't a pop video right okay but to do an investigation they sent as you mentioned Grant Payton and Adrian Mills down Dressed as punks, doing this song, We Wanna Be Famous, <laughs> intending to prove that he wasn't making people look professional by having two men were being generous here in their 30s, yeah. dressed as a decade out of date youth fashion, <laughs> singing a hopeless song. Nobody can make them look professional. <laughs> and then the thing was, they did interview the bloke, and he was normally, see, this is the weird thing, on That's Life, either they got a very kind of smug sort of Derek Hatton style response from people who, you know, were just like, ah, well, yes, I'm not yeah. doing anything wrong. Or there'd be people who'd be very sort of threatening, like the sort of people that knocked Roger Cook unconscious on ITV. But this guy just came on, basically said, I just did what I said I was going to do. He said, you didn't fool me with the Eats Filth thing. I knew it was an anagram of that's life. He had them sussed. And the thing was, as Dave Bryant, our mutual friend, has pointed out, around that time, there were the dreadful videos where she bangs the drums by the Stone Roses and Joe by the Inspiral Carpet. So there was actually somebody worse at making videos at large in Manchester (laughs) at that point. I feel feel a bit bad now, because that is the story that I remember. It was like, oh, he's ripping off bands. It clearly wasn't at all. By the way you've told it, he was just pointing the camera at bands and recording them and saying, there you go. As you said, what were they? Expected. Well, did he make them look too happy? I did always wonder that. <laughs> It's not a great single, is it? And the thing you alluded to when we played it, 
Again, this harks back to my inexplicable stint. Not just presenting on BBC local radio, presenting the afternoon show, the main afternoon show on BBC Radio Tees between 2016 and 2018. I mean, God only knows who thought that was a good idea, but I gave it my best. And you are partly responsible for this, Tim Worth. In fact, no, you are. I'm, I'm not going to hold my, not going to hold, like pull my punches here. You are entirely responsible for this, Tim Worthington, because I think you came on as a guest and I said, oh, do you know what? It'd be really good fun. Why don't you? choose like a record for us to play every day this week and it kind of bumbled along amiably for a few days and then you selected I Want to Be Famous by Buster Gobsmack and Eats Filth for us to play on the main afternoon show which I did tell you know none of the listeners appeared to object and if they did they never told me about it but a member of BBCT's management certainly did object and it remains <laughs> I was only ever told off twice in my two year stint presenting the afternoon show one of them was when I was basically a listener texted in and made the somewhat fanciful claim I don't know if you can add to this important debate in any sort of way Tim the claim as it stood was that women do not repeat not get belly button fluff. I kind of repeated this as sent on the afternoon show and then said, look, here we are, you know, we're all gathered here together. You're, you're all listening out there and kind of encouraged the female half of the listenership to examine their belly buttons as I broadcast and just <laughs> basically describe the contents to me. <laughs> was outrageous as a license fee that is what i pay it for it's not howard stern is it it's not i'm not a shock jock here am i i don't think so um i was taken aside by the same member of bbct's management at the end of the program and told and the quota stayed with me forever i was told it was open quotation marks a bit 1990s virgin radio <laughs> Which I did with the benefit of hindsight and a few years, a bit of water under the bridge, is fairly astute, I think. It's not an inaccurate comment. I do also remember the comment that was a very long 90 seconds. That, well. And I I was put out because it's 93 seconds. (laughs) It was the same member of BBCT's management. (laughs) Bob, we need to have a little word about the music policy. But if it Uh, hadn't been released as a single, you wouldn't be able to play it. The thing was, it was released as a single by BBC Records and Tate. I pointed that out. It's actually a BBC release. Again, not a single listener had objected, but she said, I'm not sure that's the kind of thing that we should be playing on the afternoon show. But there are two very strange things about the single. One is that genuinely... It is all the Dutch Life team playing on it, including Esther Ranson. Is it? Right. So, right. Okay. So, it's not a brown sauce territory no, here. No, no. I mean, it's not Source Gate 2. No, no. Gavin Campbell on drums. Esther Ranson on percussion. Doc Cox, who obviously was a great musician, on bass. Grant Bainham on the lead vocals and guitar. Well, I've, I've got to come back to Doc Cox here, because I did wonder if Doc Cox had appeared on that record at all, and I'm delighted to discover that he does. By what circumstances did the man formerly known as Ivor Biggin become a mainstream BBC One presenter? Can you answer me this, I Tim? Because I don't know. absolutely no idea, other than the fact that I know he was a very, at the same time, is doing basically songs about his genitals on the ukulele. Yes. Usually on the James Wales show. Yes. He was also a very skilled sound engineer 
who worked on a lot of BBC Wildlife documentaries. So I always assumed ah. he'd just like been funny with the backroom boys right. and okay. had been spotted that way. But he did all kinds of other things. Like, I remember seeing a letter from him in Record Collector magazine about how he discovered a magic record collecting bag that dragged him straight into sort of school first. And so, as he put it, packed with gleaming silver-topped rockabilly London label singles. Ah. And it was this brilliant, like just ridiculous letter. And it was accompanied by a photo of him with the bag. And it's, uh, <laughs> with unfailing accuracy, it's led him straight to a Brian Ferry album worth at least one pound. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I genuinely, I've never interviewed Doc Cox, and I'd love to because he's get him on, get Doc Cox on here. <laughs> He's a fascinating figure. So uh, he'd begun his career as I, or his performing career, as far as I can tell us, a character called Ivor Biggin, who had a number 22 hit, an actual hit in the British charts with a song called The Winkers Song, in brackets, misprint, misprint, which I believe was given single of the week by John Lydon in the NME in 1978, (laughs) possibly with tongue firmly in cheek. He says to have followed this up. There's a 1981 single called Bras on 45. 45. (laughs) And quite possibly one of my favourite album titles of all time. And this is from 2005, so he's never let up. There's an album called Handling Swollen Swollen Goods. He's an extraordinary but figure. Some of his, I should say, we're making it sound like he just did silly nonsense smut songs. Some of them are genuinely funny. Like, oh no, they are. The other educated ape, I think it's called, with sort of the musical monologue where he meets like the gorilla who's a fan of his. It's brilliant i love that but i find memory of because i loved him i thought he's brilliant as a kid genuinely one of my favorite figures on tv by memory of his stint on that's life and i'd love to hear if i've got this wrong basically he was he was introduced as the new presenter and he was the kind of he was the new cyril fletcher wasn't he mm. he was cyril fletcher's replacement in the sort of funny corner of that life. he got his own chair in a corner of the studio i can't imagine this this shouldn't have been possible it certainly wouldn't be possible now was there a suggestion that Esther Ranson and others on the team were like, entirely unaware of his previous career as Ivor Biggin. Well, I remember one edition where there'd been, a, tab- told off. There'd been a tabloid expose yeah. about it and she said Please tell me it's not true, Doc. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, was that real? Have they really? I mean, I suppose it's easy to be cynical about the pre-Google era. But re- he had a hit. He had a, <laughs> like, he had a top 25 hit. Is it really possible they didn't know? But yeah, my memory of it is that he would get sporadically. There was that where it was exposed, in quotation marks, the seedy song shame of <laughs> Sunday Night Superstar, or, you know, however they used to talk about about these things and then i'm sure like live on air he had to give some kind of an assurance to esther ranson that yes he had written some decidedly unsavory songs but he would definitely never do it again but then he did he kind of kind of sneak out a new ivor biggin single and esther ranson would like hold it up on the program <laughs> like admonish him live on air was that john thomas alcock was it john thomas alcock that's the one the <laughs> 
he can't, <laughs> to quote, he keeps it in his trousers tightly furled. Like, to what degree was this some kind of pantomime? <laughs> or would, I mean, I'd love to think it was the case, but was Esther Ranson genuinely unaware <laughs> that Doc Cops kept furtively going off? You just imagine him, like, entering a recording studio with, like, a, like a big hat and dark glasses on. That's probably a long Mac, is not the... <laughs> 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 Not the imagery to use here. And imagine him kind of furtively recording this stuff and hoping Esther wouldn't find out, but she did, and it kept going on and on. But a brilliant figure. What an extraordinary man. Sadly, I think it may have been pantomime, which they did quite a lot, which brings us around to the B-side of this single. Oh, now, are we talking about the Toriador from Japan? We here? are, yes, they call me Toro-san. And again, I seem to be the only person who remembers the backstory to this. I, can I have a stab at this? Go on. I don't actually know the song at all. I've only ever heard the a-side. I thought I was going to play the Toriador from Japan on BBC T's the next day, but somehow thought better of it. I'm assuming, because I know that Adrian Mills was famed on That's Life for his terrible Spanish accent. Yes, it's about that. It was Is a, it? Some kind of investigation of dodgy timeshares in Spain, wasn't it? Right, but okay. When they recorded him, like, on the phone to the dodgy timeshare sellers. Yes. And they did say, are you from Japan? <laughs> He said, no, I'm Spanish, but my mother is. So, But then, like, you can get away with that in the context of, you know, a programme where he was probably, yeah, we might have been reacting nervously, because I remember a lot of very hairy moments in some of their investigations, including one I'll come back to in a minute. But to do it as a comedy song, making capital of him doing two geographical dialects really badly, I think, you know, that, that's... <laughs> That's two stereotypes for the price of one. Yes, absolutely. Oh, well, I, I should have gone to the bloke in Manchester and got him to film that for posterity, <laughs> surely. Oh, such a, honestly, such a strange programme. I mean, people talk about all this Sunday night television. There are lots of programmes that people cite as being, it was the last bit of fun before you went back to school. And a lot of people say Spitting Image was that for them, which it was for me as well. I loved Spitting Image. But that's life. I will always remember fondly as a kind of like just a strange postscript to the whole day off school weekend with just this combination of bizarre like like you say the most like heartbreakingly hard hitting stuff and then this just weirdness, dot like three Alsatians that if you sprayed a soda <laughs> oh, the siphon, bottles, yes, yes. <laughs> just. <laughs> Did the bloke shout at them in Japanese? He did, yes, yeah. Which doesn't really help that's life's cause on no. current form, does it? <laughs> And stuff like that. I mean, the one that I... We talked about this. We discussed this. The amount of stuff from That's Life that has stuck in our heads. Because you mentioned something called Guar Gum that just made me go, yes, I remember the Guar Gum scandal of 1987 or whatever it was. Yes, it was a bloke, a businessman called Peter Foster selling it as kind of a slimming aid. And I don't know exactly what Guar Gum does to your body, but it's not, it's <laughs> I'm not gonna have a, I'm going to have a stab at not a lot. He was one of the people who sort of styled it out when they challenged right, him. Okay. But from around that time, I mean, you say it's last bit of fun before you're back in school slash work on the Monday, but there were ones where, like, they investigated kind of a postal pyramid scheme in the days when, you know, these things would just come through your door randomly. And obviously yeah. some people must have fallen for them. They followed sort of, well, like the wire, I suppose, they followed the money and ended up in America. I remember seeing these envelopes purported to be from a woman who was sort of, 
you know, because they couldn't do proper colour printing in those days. So there's sort of like a blue dye on the doors on the envelope. But when they got there, it was some very, not quite Sicilian looking men, but, you know, right. in that general direction. Right, and they were okay. trying to question them about it. The atmosphere was not good. And one of them, who, if memory says, looked a little like Jeremy Corbyn, okay. and was about five foot tall, said something to the effect of, I'll give you your answer, and took Adrian Mills off camera into a room, and you heard an almighty slap. Wow. And then he came back out with a huge red mark on the side of his face. So that sort of thing went on in amongst <laughs> all the geometry. That's not something to go off to bed on the Sunday night full of the joys of spring about, is it? Well, hang on. Can, can we just clarify here? Was it Adrian Mills that came out with the big red yes, mark on his yes, face? Yes, it was. Yes, right, yeah. was it wasn't the other bloke. Adrian Masher Mills. Don't mess with Esther's boys. You'll get a pasting. I don't care who you are, mush. But there were some where it was either there was, you know, it was a case where there was no point in anyone pursuing it or it was people just either being greedy or looking for someone to blame because there is that brilliant Not the Nine O'Clock News parody about the people who get a new cooker installed and then all kinds of things start happening. You know, like Prince Philip explodes <laughs> is one of them. And that's, on each occasion, we phoned the gas board and we were told, I'm sorry, this has, this nothing has got to nothing do to do us. with oh, us. Oh, for God's sake. What, how was I, like, at any given moment, Tim, I cannot remember the location of my keys, my wallet, my phone. <laughs> but Fuck me, I can I can remember like a minor story, the catchphrase of a minor story on That's Life from almost 40 years ago. God's sake, I, I annoy myself sometimes. The very last thing of the weekend would be the cartoons at the end, who again, I can know there's no reason on God's green earth I could I should know this, but I can tell you they were done by a cartoonist called Rod Jordan. So like everything that had been featured on the programme would then be put into cartoon form. And would, I, mean, I mean, not the most distressing things that were on the programme. There was no heartache and tragedy on there, but the lighter elements of the programme would be put in cartoon form, which would then scroll along as the end credits rolled. No doubt turned by, in my head, all of TV worked like this until about 1998. Not like turned by a bloke with a crank handle because it wasn't <laughs> quite as smooth as it could have been. Rod, we need a picture of three German Shepherd dogs on like on like a bar top, and we need a we need a picture of Adrian Mills being pummeled by a Sicilian bloke in a hotel room who looks a bit like Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, no problem, Esther. I'll get on with that. But this, as you say, I cannot understand. I mean, I love the fact that it was released as a single. Yeah. I spent years hunting for it as well because I remember them saying on air that it was going to be released and surprisingly it didn't make it into the main record <laughs> shops but I was so thrilled by the founder and the fact that it was actually credited to Buster Gobsmack and Eats It can't go for that much can it? How much did you pay for it? It's not, it's not one of those that goes for 200 quid on Discogs is no, it? No, 50, 50 pence, pence I think. There we go. But even given the bizarre standards of BBC Records and yeah. tapes who thought this was going to make who, any money? Yeah, absolutely. They're basically two That's Life presenters. Worst Still, the money went to child life. Right, okay. Obviously, that's life were very closely. I think they actually set it up, didn't they? Right. Yeah, no, they did, absolutely. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but, you know, that is even worse. You're not making any money for it. No, I just can't, like you say, you say like, so they've made a deliberately terrible punk record. That'll, that'll go a bomb. Should, should that, say uh, as well, I've gone this far without mentioning how, because a lot of that's life involved Vox Pops yeah. in the street. You like tongue in cheek ones, yes. really. But the audience were never a punk. 
was, and they weren't like you know angry punks. They like give honest answers to these stupid questions. You know, which obviously as radical and dangerous people think Chris Morris is, he was inspired by the Vox Pops on That's Life. So there you go. But whenever a punk appeared on screen, the studio audience would like shriek, like ah! <laughs> <laughs> what, what was wrong well, with the, this? Ha- is, the late 80s, why were they this amused by punks? Oh, well, have you, have you seen the genuine post-punk hero that was interviewed as a Vox Pop on That's Life? I think it is Doc Cox who's out on the street. He's got, like, huge cue cards that he's holding up, and he's asking people for reasons probably wisely lost to the mists of time. He's asking people in the street to do impersonations of Larry Grayson. And the man... <laughs> like, wait for this. The man that he unwittingly approaches on the street and asks to do this is Jazz Coleman from Killing Joke. <laughs> It's absolutely unbelievable. <laughs> and to his eternal credit, Jazz Coleman has a go. So if you, it's out there somewhere. If you ever want to see Jazz Coleman from Killing Joke doing impersonations of Larry Grayson for Doc Cox, probably on a street in Hammersmith or somewhere, it's there. For that alone, let us remember that's life. Well, just to try and regain my composure, we'll move on to your next choice. I'll just bring up my favourite Vox Pop moment ever, which is the one they always play as Esther being arrested because a policeman thought she was causing a public use. You see, they have this reputation for being, you know, sort of stern-faced consumer crusading bores, but they did all these insane yep. things. Yes, brilliant. Bro- but I remember there was program. one where Doc was improvising a song live on the street called Why Can't Women Whistle? <laughs> and challenging women to whistle as part of it. And then at the end, he obviously couldn't think what to do and said, now here's something to improve your image. Hills. Ladies, what do you think of Adrian Mills? <laughs> <laughs> then the woman wolf whistled. <laughs> oh, brilliant. If only you'd asked them if they had belly button fluff while he was there. Now we all come full circle. Well, I think we've rehabilitated that life slightly, which might actually, if your next choice is anything to go by, get us booze. Is Chris, what's the rest of it? Christina Patton. Christina Patton? Do you want me to be called Chris or Christine? Chris. Or Tina? Chris, Chris. Chris. Where do you come from? Kensal Rise. What do you do? Draftswoman. A draftswoman? My wife is a draftswoman. She will not touch the bottled stuff. <laughs> a draftswoman? Yes. Working for whom? A gas board. Oh. <laughs> She's with the gas board, folks. <laughs> oh dear, we're just lucky you managed to turn up on the right day. Okay, Bob Monkhouse. <laughs> Not dealing very well, I would say, with an audience reaction to a contestant's job on Bob's Full House. There's a lot of Bobs involved in this, aren't there? So, Bob, what is going on here? Well, now this is a cultural phenomenon that has, let's say, it's probably been under-documented over the decades. But let's write this wrong. The phenomenon of the occupations, the career choices, the vocations of members of the public being booed by the studio audience of British game shows. This is a thing. This genuinely happened, and it seemed to be reserved for... I've made a list here. I hesitate to call them reserved occupations, but I've made, I've made a list here. So if you went on a British game show, I would say at any point, certainly in the 70s or 80s, and I suspect this lasted through until the 1990s as well, and you gave your occupation as any of the following, you were kind of like, essentially letting yourself in for some pretty rough treatment from both the host and the studio audience. So, shall I read these out, Tim? And you can boo them accordingly. Oh, I'm a traffic warden, Bob. 
Yeah, mild boo. Oh, okay. Yeah. I work for the Inland Revenue, Bob. Oh, that is a very large <laughs> boo. <laughs> <laughs> right, the one, the one that you've just played. Basically, anybody, anybody who worked for a nationalised industry. I work for British Rail, Tim. Boo. Yeah. And the one that I find, and I distinctly remember this happening. The one that I find that just now seems inexplicable, but it got the same treatment. I'm a civil servant, Tim. Boo. <laughs> I said to this day, I've no idea. Why was the civil service seen as something that deserved to be roundly booed by 300 people gathered together in a BBC studio to watch the recording of Blankety Blank? I've no idea. Was the civil service seen as a kind of like not a proper job? Possibly. I don't know because the only evil civil service person I can think of is Sir Humphrey. Because generally yeah. it'd be like, you know, one of the two Ronnies would come in exhausted and say to the wife character, Oh, I'm all tired out from being a civil servant. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's, there's quite a sympathetic portrayal. But like people, like civil servant is a broad church, isn't it? Like civil, civil servant just, like you say, could be Sir Humphrey, but it could just equally be somebody who deals with, like, you know, sorting out bin collections down your local council. They're civil servants as well, aren't they? I can only assume it was just seen as something as... as... I like the idea it would have been more respectable if they said bin oh, yeah, yeah, exactly, yes. <laughs> I just assume, you know, it, it was seen as what we used to refer to at school. I don't know if there was a phrase that you used on Merseyside as well, but a bit of a dos. What did you do yesterday? Oh, I just dosed around a bit. Was the civil service seen as a job that was a bit of a dos, essentially? It was not a, you know, it's not a not a sensible job, is it? Not a job for a proper hard-working person. It's not carrying stuff around. Well, files yeah, and briefcases, exactly. isn't it? So job, is it? It will probably consider pretty much on a par with. I remember when I was about 15 getting on. This isn't an unusual bit of the story. It's all the train from Liverpool Central, to which, you know, I did pretty much I like. Day. I like how we've sexed this up, Tim. Some obvious students got on and a scally went all right students have you got your essays have you <laughs> so the idea of having been in the vicinity of an essay at some point rendered you the most idle <laughs> inert member of society it's probably i, th- I think it was yeah anybody, anybody that didn't like carry heavy things around all day was basically a drain on society also don't forget they may have been responsible for bills as well you know that generic bills that you that, yes absolutely well, because that's why I wondered, because the clip that you played there where, you know, a poor woman says, oh, I work for the gas board. And it not only gets booed, but the audience are encouraged by Bob Monkhouse to actually boo yeah. her for it. That's the thing. I was going to mention that game show hosts all had a different way of dealing with it. Like, for example, Brucey would go like, you leave him alone. Yes. It's not his fault he's a villain. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, yeah. Silla would go, ew! <laughs> like, do that thing where she put both her hands as fists against their yes. hips and like looked sort of askance at them. <laughs> Is it possible here? I don't. I don't want to get too political here, Tim. And uh, you know, and a lot of these people, well, you know, these, these presenters and comedians were like my favourite people on TV. Is it possible though that not that many of them came from a stridently left-wing background? <laughs> 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 so the thought of somebody it does seem to be the recurring thread <laughs> didn't they suddenly get Jack Rosenthal presenting is it possible that play your 
cards right. <laughs> the idea of having like a you know somebody from a a nationalised industry, a publicly owned industry, was maybe not their favourite. I don't know. I'm po- I'm possibly doing Sonny Black a disservice here. I genuinely don't know. But it's just uh, the the whole kind of idea of a period when those industries were seen as kind of a say. You know, it's the it's the era of jokes about British Rail sandwiches and sausage rolls, isn't it? So I guess it was a sort of prevailing feeling that nationalised industries were essentially a bit shit and a bit incompetent and we could do better. And I think, you know, the phrase be careful what you wish for has never been more apposite here because we now, we now live in an era. I was looking at the latest findings of the National Office of Statistics today, Tim. You can't talk about sex and <laughs> guilt in that case. <laughs> there are now, I can, I, I'm, I'm delighted to report to you that there, there are actually, there are now more energy providers in operation in the UK than there are people living in the entirety of Slough and its surrounding areas. It is just staggering that we've reached this age where I bet you can, you can, there's an energy, you've probably got an energy supply company, Tim, that I don't know. I've probably got one that I don't know about. Everybody has got a different energy supplier these days. I just think, you know, hearing that Bob's Full House clip and hearing a woman say, oh, I work for the gas board, the one gas board, just made me feel like incredibly, I don't know, just kind of warm and fuzzy for an era when you just, it was basically dead easy to sort out your gas because it was just one company that did it. It was just one less thing to worry about. Why do I have to spend my life worrying whether I should change energy supplier? Which energy supplier should I use? I don't bloody know. I'm a bloke that writes about like ghosts for the 14 times. I don't know anything about energy supply. You tell me. You just tell me the best one and I'll use that. Or alternatively, just have one that's a doddle. That'd suit me down to the ground. Uh, sorry, I said we weren't going to do politics, then suddenly did loads of politics. Well, no, I think that's fair because genuinely when there was looking into this and actually looking for examples for happening, I did really think how far we have fallen because we've gone from, yeah, I don't think it's right that there was, you know, contempt for these poor ordinary people who'd gone on to blankety blank to try and win <laughs> not even any money. Yes. Yes. Some, you know, some and they'd have to endure Bill Tidy in the top left <laughs> corner saying, well, Terry, we're both men of the world, <laughs> unlike the contestants. But, you know, they've gone through all that. Now, the audience do their job as well, but we've gone from there to Matt Hancock being on bloody, I'm a celebrity, get me yeah. out here. And I can't say nobody objects because, you know, I certainly fucking objected. <laughs> but, you know, we have got to the situation where the actual villains are on the game shows, it's... not the sort of comedy public. Yeah. Even hate figure feels a bit too strong to say. But how has that, how has Gales tipped that I just far? like ordinary people. They've applied to go onto a quiz show. They're terrified. I mean, you don't get that anymore. You don't get terrified people on TV anymore. They're too heavily vetted. You don't get <laughs> nervous contestants anymore. Well, they've applied and they're sitting opposite, a, you know, a bloke, generally a bloke who does comedy for a living and has done for decades. And suddenly he's, he's taken the piss out of your job. <laughs> <laughs> Just, what do you want me to do? Quit? I'm supposed to quit the gas board and get a job writing novels or something. What do you want me to do? Well, we've we'll gone to your last choice yes. now, and it's lucky that the audience has stopped short of this kind of reaction to people's jobs. <laughs> Good morning and welcome to Flannerama, our regular look in depth at the changing political, economic and social structure of the world around us. I guess this morning needs very little introduction. One of the foremost students of international affairs in the 20th century and senior opposition under secretary for Europe without portfolio, the Phantom Flamfinger. 
Phantom, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Can you tell me, what do you feel in the last 12 months Britain has done to alleviate the problem in Afghanistan? I see. It's an aggressive reply, perhaps as I expected. OK, Chris Tarrant there trying to get a searing political interview out of the Phantom Flamflinger and getting, obviously, the predictable reaction. Bob, custard pies. Not just custard pies, but a very specific, a kind of theatrical custard pie, a TV-only custard pie that, as far as I can ascertain, involved neither custard nor pies. So we're talking about the kind of custard pie that was essentially a paper plate covered in white shaving foam, which would be referred to on TV throughout the 1970s and 80s as a custard pie, but quite clearly wasn't. And they were everywhere. If you watch TV for more than about 40 seconds, you are almost guaranteed to see somebody have one of these things shoved in their face. They probably did it on 40 minutes and heart of the matter. <laughs> Brass tacks will have been shoving a custard pie in somebody's face by the end of that. I just don't picturing Joan Baker trying to laugh there's off. A, there's a woman who's shaving foam all over She shoved a custard pie in somebody's face. The thinking man's custard pie. It was such a phenomenon <laughs> that the goodies actually did a single called Custard Pie. <laughs> about true. the art of yes. throwing custard pies. Absolutely. In which, brilliantly, I mean, if you've not heard it, imagine a Bill Oddie song about custard pies and you can hear it in your <laughs> head already. exactly but like you'd think. There is a brilliant bit because it's like a kind of like James Brown sort of, well, all those things like James brown pastiches but it's got a bit where he starts screaming give it to me give it to me give it to me and then the custard pie hits him in the face well, is it a great audio guy bill oddy was quite clearly a fan of a bit of the funk wasn't he there's a very specific subgenre of goodies funk i think in the 1970s he really did come down on the one he quite did. a lot he did. absolutely yes he did but you are right though it, nearly every well not nearly every program because obviously you know scotch on the rocks the thriller about scottish <laughs> There's one in there somewhere. Have it in. But anything you'd expect there to be a custard pie on, there will be one. And generally, generally people who were hit with them, I say would be gracious about it. People like Lenny Henry who seem to be upset that they weren't being hit more yes, absolutely, with them. Yeah. The one exception was Noel Edmonds who was like, oh, you're not going to hit me with that custard <laughs> pie, are you? No, it's just to deflect it by making a joke out of it. You're right. Absolutely everywhere. My memories of stuff that would happen if you watch TV for long enough in the 1970s in particular. Firstly, you would see somebody attempting to lie on a bed of nails. That seemed to occur on a very regular basis. You'd see somebody ripping a telephone directory in half. You would see... Now, here's... I'd love to know if this is a thing that still continues in any shape or form whatsoever. You'd see plate spinners. There's one thing that nobody ever mentions that I want to throw in, which is puppets on a black background yeah. where the puppeteers were just had to tell in black so you couldn't see them, with what appeared to be Half the Man by Jamiroquai quiet playing in the background. <laughs> well, do you know, I was going to put an appeal out here because in my head there was music that always accompanied a plate spinning act on TV. And I've no idea what it is or how to identify it. You probably know this immediately. It's a really well-known piece of music. You'll recognise it straight away. But it essentially went... <clears throat> Saber dance. 
Yeah, that's Captain Jewelry and Sabre There you go. Yeah. That's what it is. That is. Did they use like a proper classical version of it? I don't, I don't know whose version it was. Probably, probably Bill Oddie did it with <laughs> starting on the one, I imagine. That was always used for be. plate spinning. Had, it was right. on the statute books. The Harold Wilson government introduced it in 1974. But yeah, custard pies. And then you brought up. Now, I think this is kind of. I think this is more tangential than you think, but you mentioned the Phantom Flan Flinger. Was that what he used? In my head, it was... I can't believe I've thought about this in this much detail. It I thought it was an actual I, flan. I, no, no, I didn't think... Well, although that, that, I'd like to come back to the flan debate, if that's okay. In my head, I thought the Phantom Flan Flinger's pies were more yellowy than white. They may have been mixed up right. with some special wonder glue or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> As it was always called on Tiswas. People say gunge God. now. It was wonder well, glue. This, now, this, cause this kind of ties in. This is the beginning of the gunge era, really, isn't it? Not grunge. Not grunge. No, say. not the grunge movement. <laughs> <laughs> well, so quite a few. A couple of custard pies by the group. I was just going to say, quite, quite a few American bands of the early 1990s that I would have happily seen saturated in <laughs> wonder glue and gunk. But yes, the Phantom Flan Flinger. Actually, I'm going to do the flan thing now because otherwise we'll forget about it completely. This is an aside, but it's something that has intrigued me over the years. Flan versus quiche. What I now see as quiche... What is now marketed widely as quiche, I'm convinced was just called flan when I was a child. I don't remember hearing the word quiche until about 1983. It wasn't in common parlance in the northeast of England, no, I don't think. No, quiche was, as been discussed on here previously, was seen as quite a bit hippie-ish, vegetarian ah, cafe sort was of it? thing. Okay. A suspicious innovation from right. those do-gooding CND I'm, types. Right, okay. <laughs> I was going to say, is it, are we looking at a class difference here, essentially? Is flan the proletarian? version of quiche and quiche is the kind of hippie liberal version of flan <laughs> but essentially they are one and the same I suspect so but I still want to know why he was called the phantom flan flinger it wasn't bloody flan it was custard pies yeah exactly yeah whatever flan is whatever custard well, it wasn't custard pies either it was gunge on a paper plate but that's the thing gunge like literally swamped it gunge overtook the art of the custard it pie it did and it disappeared, but it's never left people of our age. And I will come back to an anecdote involving one in a minute. But you do get stray occurrences like a while ago. Do you remember somebody threw one at Jeremy Clarkson? And the usual suspects turned it into it. I mean, he seems to think it was quite funny, but the usual suspects. I bet, I bet he didn't really. Can't a man even be a bigot in peace anymore? You know, this is this disgraceful behaviour by. They weren't even saying the woke left at that point, but you know, that's what they'd be saying now. But a couple of years ago, there was National Custard Pie Day. I am suspicious of that anyway. I think it may have been set up entirely for the purpose of this because I don't recall it ever happening before or since. But to promote it, Harry Hill went on Good Morning Britain right. and was playing along, being his usual self, saying, here's how to make the perfect custard pie. You, you, know, you, get, the, you get the shaving foam, you, you go like that. Look, Are you watching carefully? You go like that. And then he just rammed it genuinely really hard I smacked it in Piers Morgan's face <laughs> like, mm, mm, funny isn't it and did Piers Morgan take it in good humour no he did not he absolutely did you not you surprised me oh fantastic and the greatest thing about all of that is that you know I can say having I'll drop it in again Tim having spent a long time as part of the media circus whirlwind that is BBC local radio I can virtually guarantee that what had actually happened there was that a leading custard manufacturer had decided <laughs> the sales of custard have not been what they could be in the third quarter of 2017. <laughs> 
2017 <laughs> or whatever it was. So what we'll do, we will create National Custard Day and we will hire Harry Hill to go on every media outlet that will have him and promote the virtues of custard and the hilarity of custard pies. If that wasn't the case, I mean, I could be, I could be doing Harry Hill. He's a, he's a comedian I like a lot, and I could be doing him a grand disservice here. Maybe he did just go on because he's a huge fan of custard as a dessert ingredient. As somebody who's been on the other side of the media, I'll be staggered if that wasn't the case. Well, I'm wondering if you've ever been on the other side of a custard pie. Because I haven't. I've got I'd love a to very, be. very entertaining story, but you know how I said the image of it never left us? Yes. If, you know, you're the same sort of age that we were when people were hitting Sally James and Bob Carroll G's with them continually <laughs> which balance it out between the channels Checkers probably got quite a few as well I would imagine <laughs> including on Checkers Plays yes. Pop I imagine one of the pop groups will have Pookie done it you know, like, oh I wasn't expecting <laughs> that BFA and Robertson like, will have done it yes yeah <laughs> a couple of years ago one of my friends had his birthday yeah. in a local restaurant okay. where they found out it was his birthday and they'd obviously improvised because they didn't have any cakes in Basically just a sponge cake that had loads of spray whipped cream on top. Right. And they brought it out singing happy birthday. Now, his missus is, I think the best way they can use is she is a bit of a scam. Okay, right. I saw her eyes dart towards it. And genuinely, (laughs) I thought, I know what she's thinking. And with exquisite timing, just when he was doing a speech about how happy he was, everyone had come out for his birthday and how touched he was, we were all there. She picked it up and just hit him straight in the face with it, thinking, Saturday, Saturday, Saturday is this Fantastic. Now, he found it funny. Yeah, good. <laughs> Stitch that, He said, chew on that, Piers Morgan. Watch and indeed learn. He should actually chew on a lot of custard pies. I'd be quite happy to make that happen. Just uh, eating loads of shaving foam. I, right, well, I will happily put this out on Looks Unfamiliar, Tim. I have never been on the receiving end of a custard pie <laughs> or anything that purports to be a custard pie, but I would be delighted to be. You do realise that a lot of Tis was super fans <laughs> and some Tis was alumni. Listen to this. If a man in a very small rabbit costume costs you on the street with custard pie, don't blame if, me. If Fogwell Flax is listening in, treat this as carp blanche find me (laughs) custard pie me and on that note i feel as i could turn to one side and just say doc (laughs) i haven't got any amusing misprint stands (laughs) (laughs) we'll just roll we'll roll the rod jordan cartoons at the end of looks unfamiliar Picture. <laughs> That's it. Has he got a contestant being booed <laughs> yeah, on exactly. it? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and Pookie Snack and poor woman from the gas board being booed. Fogwell Flax. <laughs> creamy Eames a, as a creamy, well. Creamy Eames on Trisha Yates' He sounds floor. like he knows his way around the custard He, he does, doesn't he? Yes. <laughs> well, well, I can actually string some yes. words together in the recognisable order. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, just made me look like a sensible, rational writer of social commentators. <laughs> We did the Q&A at the end, and somebody said, thing about threads, I've always thought it was a little bit lightweight. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell, really? <laughs>
Why? What are the two programs that actually disturb you? Probably Sykes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's terrified of the trombone <laughs> in the opening title. <laughs> well, I was actually a little bit disconcerted by the trombone in the titles to say. But there we go. Top of the Box Volume 2 by Tim Worthington. The story behind every album released by BBC Records and Tapes, from Play School Play On to Russell Grant's Zodiac Jukebox. Comedy, sound effects, show tunes, folk, singing soap stars, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, and more albums birds on that you ever knew it was possible to exist. More details, timworthington.org. No, there was that advert that went shopping electric, get a good, good deal at your e-electricity <laughs> board shop. So you had an electricity board shop. Wow, well, do you know what? Here's something I genuinely nearly put this in. I think, ele- sorry, you'll have to cut about four hours of this, Tim. You're going to have to cut this down quite significantly. I, I nearly put on my list, my, my short list for this programme. Here's one for the teenagers out there. The electricity board showroom in the Cleveland Centre in Middlesbrough, uh, the Neeb showroom, the Northeastern Electricity Board. It was the last example that I can recall of a shop that had a resident organ player. What? what? Why? Oh, anybody, did, you, you didn't have resident organ players I in ele- ele- electrical no. shops on Merseyside? No. no. <laughs> I thought this. I, I thought. I assumed this was a nationwide phenomenon. Maybe it was just that one shop. No, it wasn't. Because I, you know, department stores, electrical showrooms would sell keyboards, and not just off the. You know, we're not. We're, we're not talking like you know Vince Clark here. We're to, we're talking like. Uh, at the risk of heading into Doc Cox territory, we're talking full-sized organs. The kind of, you know, you go around to somebody's parents' house and they'd have like, basically a Hammond organ in the back room. <laughs> that they, like they paid 5,000 quid for and got it on the HP for 20 years. So their shops would sell those. And uh, as far as I recall, in my childhood, there were men and indeed women whose main source of income was to sit in the shop all day playing the keyboard. Not the period, because again, I nearly put this on the list, and this is a really recent one. Not the period when people with calloused feet would sit in a shopping arcade with their feet in a tank of water containing carnivorous fish and have the dead skin nibbled off their feet by said fish as shoppers wandered by. Now, I remember seeing that was in the Cleveland Centre in Middlesbrough as well. That feels like relatively recently. It feels like about a fortnight ago, that. So I'm going to say it was probably about 2003. Would they get booed on a game show? (laughs) What, the fish? Yes. (laughs) What do you do for a living? Well, Bob, I'm a carnivorous fish that nibbles dead skin off feet in shopping centres. Boo! It's seven o'clock. Welcome back to the Open University. And now we have a change from the advertised lecture on the physiology of cells and organisms. In this program, we meet Simon Perkins, a sickly young boy from a small northeastern town, and look at the effect of an incident behind the railwayman's hut. The program is intended for students of module DD305, Simon Perkins Lurgy. Can anybody with a telly on hear the conversations that we have? 
Or is it just me? I'm flattered that you think anybody else is actually watching, Simon. Just think of your poor parents today, working their fingers to the bone to keep a roof over your head so that you can spend all day on your backside watching the Open University. You can't possibly know all this! I'm on the telly, Simon. We know everything. At the start of Bullseye, when he introduces the contestants, he'll tell you which ITV region they hail from. Yeah. I always love as well. Oh, two, two lads here from the Granada region. As also, as Justin Lewis pointed out, at one point the ad breaks tell the story of Bully going to the gents. There's an actual <laughs> narrative to it. The thing I always wonder is, in the opening titles, when he's on that, he's on the coach with loads of darts players, and a big dart comes past and Bully jumps onto it and flies off into yes. the dartboard. Yes. What happened? happens to the darts players who appear to be heading towards some kind of existential dart void. <laughs> that's, as, that's as good a description as bullseye as any I've ever heard. An existential <laughs> dart void. Uh, oh, extraordinary programme. 